0: Like I said earlier, I was uh, in Houston, not Houston, um, Austin, <laughs> all week, and uh, so I have the privilege this morning of having Larry Short uh, fill in for me and bring the message, and you know, I've known Larry for 23 years, that actually it was about 23 years ago this month that you and I met, and he spilled lasagna all over his lap <laughs> at my house.
1: That's why i wear a dark shirt
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let me go ahead and pray for Larry as he brings the word. Father, I thank you for my brother. And Father, may you uh, give clarity and just anoint him. And Father, give us understanding, not just so that we may think better, but Lord, that we may live better, that we may live from the inside out the hearts and the ways of your kingdom as your followers. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: amen. Thank you. It's always a privilege for me to share, and a blessing to me. I don't know um, if you guys realize this, but um, this is one of the reasons our pastor is such a spiritual giant. Every every Sunday he gets up here and he prepares and he brings us the word. And in, in preparing, I find I'm, I'm blessed and I'm ministered to, and God speaks to me. And the challenge to me is to do what he says, um, because we we often hear the Lord, and we often say amen during sermons, and I find myself many times uh, going and not applying what I learned during the week. I don't know if if that's something that you guys uh, share. So for my part this morning, Lord, I would ask that the the word of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, Last week, Pastor Martin shared a short little video of a, a psychiatrist or psychologist who has very short sessions, five minutes or less, and he answers every problem with two words. Do you remember what those were? Stop, Stop it! <laughs> I love that video. My uh, message today is sort of the inverse of that. It's just do it, and for, I'm at risk of being sued by Nike, probably, for titling my sermon Just Do It, but I think it's very appropriate to the passage that we're going to be reading today, chapter 1 of James, verses uh, 22 through 27. Um, I think at the beginning, however, of a study like this, it's a great idea to just kind of signpost and take a step back before we get in the weeds and look at the big picture and kind of where we're at with James, because it helps me to interpret what I read in light of the purpose of the book and who wrote it. So James was uh, written by not James the Apostle, but James the brother of Jesus, uh, also known as James the Just. And it's interesting to me when you read about the story of James, because He was a guy, along with other brothers and sisters that he had in the family of whom Jesus was the oldest brother, he was a guy who, uh, with his brothers and sisters, didn't necessarily really believe that Jesus was the Messiah while Jesus was doing his ministry. It says at one point that um, Mark 3 reveals that uh, they sought to restrain him because they thought he was out of his mind. (laughs) that 's really interesting to me and imagine I, I can kind of understand i 'm the oldest of, of five kids, and while i you know i i 'm sure my younger brothers and sisters look up to me as being perfect. imagine if your oldest brother really was <laughs> uh, boy that's that 's an act to follow you know and, and some of us struggle with oh you know am i am I the favorite or is you know my older brother or sister my mom and dad 's favorite well that that 'd be a tough thing and if we're where your oldest brother really was perfect, and he was God. (laughs) And imagine the pressure that would bring. But something interesting happens uh, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and probably about the time that the Holy Spirit descends in uh, Jerusalem, James uh, comes on board. And I'm I'm assuming his brothers and sisters did too. And James becomes known as James the Just, a leader in the church. It's interesting how he introduces this letter. He introduces it as a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long journey to travel from uh, jealous sibling and unbelieving sibling to humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting in this letter, he doesn't even mention that he's the brother of Jesus. And the humility of James I really uh, admire and I have a lot to, to learn from. So he's writing to Jewish Christians who were uh, dispersed because of persecution, going through tough times, Um, trials and tribulations he exhorts them as we remember from when we first started studying James 1 to um, adopt God's perspective on those difficulties, to rejoice in their their difficulties because they serve to strengthen their faith and endurance and God exhorts us to do the same thing we don't have the same difficulties they did, praise God Uh, I think most of us are not persecuted and driven from our homes but we have difficulties, we have troubles and trials that we experience throughout life and so We um, can rejoice in those according to James because of what they do for us in the long run. That's the wisdom of God and his word as opposed to the wisdom of the world, which would say, no, troubles and tribulations are bad. That's what the world would say. But God's wisdom has a different perspective on that. If any of us needs wisdom, James says, all we have to do is ask. And that's amazing. It's a, a blanket promise. We don't deserve it, but we can ask and God will give it without reservation to us, generously to us. And it's interesting what that wisdom that he gives us looks like because it's rooted in God's word. It's rooted in in his truth, what he reveals to us. Uh, James says it's God's will to bring us forth by the word of truth. That's an interesting statement to me. Pastor Martin touched on this last week. Uh, The Father of lights, our Father in heaven, is the giver of every good gift. Good and perfect gift, Scripture says. So we can trust him with no need to fear. So that kind of brings us up to the point where we are today. Um, and before we, we jump in and read it, I think there's two fundamental errors that we can approach uh, this whole idea of grace and, and how we are to live our lives as Christians. And they're kind of diametrically opposed. And Paul deals a lot with the first error. And that is an error that would say, well, I need to earn god's favor and i need to do good stuff i need to come to church every sunday and i need to be an elder and do whatever you know pray and read my bible consistently all this stuff i need to do that and then god will accept me and paul in places like ephesians 2 says no uh, salvation is a gift of god through faith and even the faith is not your own doing but god gives you that faith to believe it's 100 percent god and zero percent us and the and so he's addressing that error. And then the other error on the opposite side of the spectrum is, is kind of similar to an error that I experienced when I was uh, saved, and I'll, I'll share about that in a minute. And that is, uh, hey, Christ paid the price on the, on the, on the cross. He, he settled it once and for all. Sounds good, let's move on, not worry about it, do whatever we want. Licentiousness, essentially living in liberty, total liberty, and doing whatever we want. And James was writing to Christians addressing that specific error. Um, so when I was eight, uh, I, had li- I had grown up in Sunday school. And what I remember of, of the, uh, those who taught Sunday school, I'm sure they taught much more than this, but what I remember is this. Hell is hot, it's a bad place you don't want to go there. <laughs> any, any, any of the rest of you have that experience? And as a kid, I'm like, heck no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah, I want to do whatever it takes, you know, not go there. And, and they said, accept Jesus as your, as your Savior and He will keep save Savior from hell. Sounds great. I had no idea how to do that. And so I worried about that for a long time. As an eight-year-old, I'm like, ah, you know, what are the words? What do I do? And... Uh, the interesting part about my story is that I, I tried several times and didn't feel like it stuck, <laughs> you know, didn't get the words right or whatever. And one day I was uh, playing with my sister Sandy and hauled up for some reason, I don't remember, and popped her one, slugged her hard. She started crying ran to mom, and I thought, oh, the wrath of mom is about to descend. So I went to my usual hiding place, which was very usually quite effective, a bush in the, on the side yard inside of her house in San Fernando, California. Hid there, you know waiting, listening to hear if mom came out the door. And when I was listening, instead of hearing mom, I started hearing the voice of God. I'll never be able to explain this, but God started. And he wasn't talking about hell and how hot it was. (laughs) He was talking about me and my sin. And he was saying, you know, this sin problem that you've got, what you just did, that's only going to get worse. And you need to give your life and your heart to me, and I'll take care of it for you. And I heard that, not an audible voice, but I heard that in my, my spirit as clear as I remember that. Uh, you know, that was 52 years ago, and I remember exactly what that felt like. And, and I did that. I, I said, Yes, God, I, I want to do what you say. I want to give you my heart and my life. And I had the sense of God's smile saying, Okay, now the adventure begins. <laughs> I ran out from under the bush and <laughs> collided with my mom, as she was running out the back door. <laughs> ready to spank me, and I said, Mom, Mom, guess what? I just asked Jesus into my heart. She kind of, mm, okay. (laughs) 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 But praise God, my mom was wonderful, and she believed me, and and the adventure truly began from there. But here's the interesting thing. Looking back, my attitude was kind of like, cool, that's done. Check off that box. Don't have to worry about going to hell now. Let's live my life. And for the next nine years, I didn't really worry about God very much. I still sat in Sunday school every week, but I didn't worry about what He was thinking, what He was about me. And um, until uh, when I was 17, something interesting happened. So we had moved to a new town, started a new church. About the same time as a new youth pastor came on, his name, name was John Carroll, and John said to me, um, "Larry, let's. You're new, I'm new. Hey, let's let's sit down and study the Bible together. You want to do that?" And then I'm like. I was kind of like, why on earth would I want to do that? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Study the Bible? What, are you crazy? But I didn't have a whole lot else better to do. Uh, I was interested in impressing a a girl I had met named Darlene at that church. (laughs) And I was thinking a lot about her, and I thought, well, okay, you know, it'd be good to know something about the Bible. So I sat down with John at a a picnic table after school, and we started reading the book of John. And a really interesting thing happened, and the only way I can describe it is Jesus jumped out of the pages and into my heart and, and started To implant his word in me and change me and I remember that senior year of my senior year in high school uh, that year of my life was one of the most interesting years I've ever experienced as a Christian and part of it was because there was opposition there was the newly implanted word and there was I was in an an advanced placement AP English class full of atheists I was the only Christian in the class and the class including the teacher their favorite hobby was to chew up and spit out Christians (laughs) foolish gullible Christians And uh, so they proceeded to attempt to do that with me and I uh, interacted with them and with with a lot of prayer support and learning and Darlene was praying for me and John and others in my church. It ended up being a wonderful experience. I won't go into the details, but a wonderful year where God really proved himself to me um, as um, that his word was relevant in my life in a way I'd never envisioned being possible. So in this letter, James is dealing with people like the person I was before that happened, He's, um, basic, these people basically think that salvation is fire insurance. It's like, cool, check that off the box, you know, I'm saved, I can do whatever I, I want and not have to deal with God. And James is saying that these people are hearing the word, like I was hearing the word every week. I wonder, I think back and wonder, where was I for those nine years? I, heard, I was in Sunday school every, and I don't remember anything. I, just, I was hearing it, I was going in this year, out this year, wasn't making a difference in my life. It wasn't getting implanted until John and I sat down and, and he began to do that. So let's read the passage together that he uses to address this. We'll not read it together, but I'll read it and you guys can listen. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Okay, so the first question I have when I read this passage, the very beginning of it, what is the nature and the cause of the self-deception that occurs when we, quote-unquote, hear the word, but we fail to do the word? And what does it really look like to do the word, okay? Um, verse 25 tells us that doing the word involves looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevering, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. In other words, it's taking seriously what the word reveals to us about how we are to change and pressing forward to obey what we hear and see the change happen in our lives. And it's really interesting that, to me, that James uses the analogy of a man looking into a mirror because guys aren't very good at looking into mirrors, in my experience. <laughs> uh, women have this down, right? My wife sits in a chair, you know, in the morning. She's got her hand mirror and she's putting on her makeup. And I'm like, Church, let's go to church. What are we doing? I'm all ready. Let's go, you know. <laughs> she's like, Well, slow down the truck a little bit. You know, have you looked in the mirror? I'm like, no, why would I want to do that? I'm, I'm a pretty handsome guy. She's well, <laughs> if you did, you'd see this big green thing stuck between your two front teeth, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll go look in the mirror, and sure, no, there's a big green thing in there, okay? I should look in the mirror, because if I did, it would reveal reality about how I look. Now, Cal and I were talking about this the other night. It was uh, interesting. I think most of us guys have a vision of ourselves in our head that is... 10 to 20 years younger than we really are what we looked like, you know, when we were 30 or so and uh, (laughs) um, you know not as gray at the temples or in the beard and and not as many wrinkles and, um, you know sans the nose hair and the ears hairs and without the stuff in our teeth, whatever, right? that's our vision of ourselves, we're pretty steadily in our mind, you know so we don't have to look in a mirror, right? Amen. (laughs) So, so what does a mirror do? It, it reveals reality to us. We don't like it. It's painful, you know. I, I don't like it. I should, should speak for myself. I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh man, I've got 10 or 20 more pounds than I envision that I have when I think about myself. And I'm looking a little older and and there's some things I can do, some things about, some things I can't. You know, I can brush my teeth, I can comb my hair, I can shave, whatever. So, the function of the mirror is to, and I struggled with what this meant when I first started reading it, but it, it occurred to me, take it at face value. The function of the mirror is to show us reality. The mirror does not lie to us, typically, unless it's one of those funhouse mirrors. You look at it, and it's like, ouch. <laughs> you know, it's, It shows us reality. So if we're smart, what do we do? We get the toothbrush, if we have enough time, brush your teeth, trim the nose hairs, whatever, right? Comb the hair. Get ready if we're smart. If we're in denial, uh, we say man i don't look so good amen okay well it's where where do i put my bible and, and we get distracted spiritual add right we go oh there's my bible okay let's go to church and we forget all about brushing our teeth and whatever we need to do to take care of things and that's what james is talking about here when he says a man who looks in the mirror and sees his natural face his natural reflection but just goes off doesn't do anything about what he sees he's He's allowed God to reveal something to him. He's looked in the mirror. He sees the truth. But this guy's an idiot (laughs) because he goes off and doesn't do anything But He doesn't brush his teeth, right? He is truly the fool. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian talked about playing the fool. And and that's a good definition for a fool, someone that that does that, right? So James has something uncomfortable to say to those of us who do this. Uh, He says, don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Deal with whatever issues the Word reveals sooner, better than later, right? Don't conveniently forget, like I often do, those who act on what the Word reveals according to this passage will be blessed. Now, it's interesting. Notice it doesn't say, we'll be saved. And I discovered something really interesting this week while I was studying this, because I, I was trying to kind of reconcile—I confessed to Martin before. James is not my favorite book, because in chapter 2 it says, we're justified by our works. Paul says in Ephesians, we're justified by our faith. That seems like a contradiction to me. And and I was trying to address that, resolve that. And I ran across something, an interaction that Jesus had with Peter during the Last Supper that um, I think really addresses this in an interesting way. So let's read that together. (laughs) He came, he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is as Jesus is girding himself up with a towel and starting to go from disciple to disciple and wash their feet. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Wow, that's really interesting. If I don't wash your feet, you're not a part of what's happening here. You have no share with me. So Simon Peter says, we know Simon Peter flip-flops from one extreme to the other, right? It's kind of like me. Um, He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus says something really interesting to him. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said not all of you are clean. Eleven of Jesus' disciples had been washed. They'd had a bath. Now, um, James is focusing on what happens, I think, as a result of authentic faith. Uh, But because even though we've had a bath, and Jesus says, you are clean, Jesus still says, you need to get your feet washed. That's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? And I think Paul is saying You've all had a bath. You don't need to bathe all the time. Okay, you know, we, we use baptism, the ordinance of baptism, to as a symbol of what happens when we're saved, right? We don't get baptized over and over again. It's a one-time thing. We, we are buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the, in to walk in newness of life in the likeness of his resurrection. And um, that's a one-time event. And Jesus has bathed us once. Unlike me and my annual bath, Jesus has bathed us once, and it's a done deal, Right? Um, it's taken care of. But despite that, we still need to get our feet washed. We walk through the world and we, we pick up the grime. And um, we slide back a little bit. And the, the answer for that is getting our feet washed. And I think that's what James is talking about here. Um, the mirror, the implanted word, shows us the truth, the reality of the little dysfunctions and the sinful behaviors and the dust that we all gather as we walk through the world and uh, if you've never experienced the cleansing forgiveness of Christ's sacrificial atonement on your behalf, if you've never had the bath, um, if you've never been saved by faith, yes, you need a bath. I mean, that's the important thing. You need to get right with God. You need to say, Lord, in faith. And that's what I did when I was eight. I had the bath. Christ washed my sins away. And even the faith to do that as an eight-year-old expressed that, God gave that faith according to Ephesians 2. I can't take any credit for it. He He saved me. But I don't need to keep getting saved. That was it. That was my bath. I was saved. Uh, What I do need is what began to happen when I was 17 years old. I need the implanted word to bear real fruit in me, and I need to wash my feet. Probably on a daily basis, probably several times a day, I need to stop and say, okay, God, I'm looking at your word, I'm looking at what you say, and I'm seeing that what I just said to my wife wasn't very kind And I'm sorry, 1 John 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the sense of that verse is not one time but it's over and over again if we confess as we sin and he is faithful and just to cleanse that, to take care of it, to wash our feet and, and we can move on so what are some of the reasons that we might, thinking about this, like me in my nine years, hear the word, have to go in one ear and out one ear and not see it bear fruit in our lives. And Pastor Mark and I were talking about this last week, and he said, look no further than the parable of the four soils, which I thought was was an awesome response to this. So you remember the four soils. First one, seed. This is uh, Luke uh, 8. Seed falls on hardened paths on the side, and the, the birds of the air come and gobble the seed before it ever gets a chance to get in the dirt. So that's representative of Satan snatching away the seed of truth before it can ever be implanted. And that's one type of soil of the heart that is so hardened that it can't even hear. It doesn't make sense. And, and Satan snatches that away before it happens. Second type is the rocky, thin soil, where the seed comes in, barely takes root, but it's not thick enough to sustain life. And when trials come in tribulations, like what James is talking about here, sun beats down, the heat is on, the plant withers and fades away. Third type is the one that I most uh, relate to, the weedy soil. Um... Seed falls in a place where there's lots of weeds, which I have in my yard, and they spring up and they choke out the good stuff because there's so much, and they, the weeds represent distractions. And th- this is the one that really hits home to me because I have a lot of distractions in my life. I, uh, I'm literally busier now than I was when I was working full-time before I was retired last August. You know, I've got two part-time jobs, and I'm ri- writing a novel and, and doing a lot, of, a lot of stuff here at the church and. Uh, I love being busy, I'm happy being busy, and, and but the temptation is to be too busy and to sacrifice the best things because I'm doing good things. I don't know if any of the rest of you relate to that. So the weedy soil is the one I really, that sings to me and says, yeah, you're in danger of that. That's one of the things the mirror is saying to me. And then the fourth kind, of, cor- of course, is the good soil, where the word can implant and grow unhindered and eventually bear great fruit. So James follows up this statement about us being blessed with some pretty sobering warnings and questions we should ask ourselves if we don't act like who we are, children of God. In verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Here we see that the deception of heart, which James spoke of earlier, the person who thinks they're okay when they're not, is demonstrated by the fact that that uh, that person may have an unbridled tongue. So what does this unbridled tongue thing mean? I was chatting with Nathan earlier because he and I share a love of horses. I was raised on horseback. I missed TV when I was a teenager because I was on horseback. I missed Gilligan's Island. You guys can fill me in on what happened there later if you want. And all the other shows, right? I had a horse named Sean, uh, and, and I had a special relationship with his horse, and I rode him probably four hours a day. This was in Southern California in kind of a rural town called Norco where there's more horses than people, even though it's sort of suburban Los Angeles area. It was a fantastic experience. We had also had chickens and goats, and and I I helped my dad with 20 pigs in the garden and and grew up on kind of a mini farm. But I'd ride the horse. I'd start usually at 4 o'clock in the morning at a paper route. I'd ride on horseback gallop across the neighbors lawns jump over their hedges throw their got a lot of complaints but i had a lot of fun you know and uh, but then i'd go riding down to the river bottom river bottom you know you're up in the, in the city which is not really a city but it's you know a lot of no sidewalks and dirt and stuff cuz everybody rode their horse there no no street lights and, uh, and then I'd go down and I'd I'd ride in the river bottom. And Sean and I got on the same wavelength. We rode so much together that, you know, I was able to ride in bareback, didn't have to use a saddle, and I actually enjoyed bare, bareback riding. And it got eventually, so I didn't even need a bridle, really. So what does a bridle do? A bridle is the way you communicate your desires to the horse. Do horses like bridles, Nathan? <laughs> no. <laughs> they know. It's got the metal bar that goes between their teeth, and they're like, yeah, I don't like this. This, this sucks. But... The master uses the bridle to communicate his desires to the horse, and the, the horse learns that if he doesn't go left when the master says go left, it's going to get a little uncomfortable for him, because that he's gonna, you know you're you're pulling the reins and he's going to go over, etc. So Sean and I, Sean got so he could he could sense my body tension and my language, and we'd ride along, and I got eventually so down the river bottom I could ride him without a bridle, and I could if I wanted to have him stop, I'd you know tense up a certain way, or I'd lean forward if I wanted to have him go, and he'd take off, and a little tug on the mane to the left, to the right. Uh, it takes a long time to develop that kind of relationship with a horse where they they understand you, you mean business, <laughs> and you're going to put the bridle back on if they don't do what you say. You know, <laughs> and, and to me, that's encouraging that eventually you can take the bridle off, but you have to hear the voice of the master to do that. I'm not very good personally at being unbridled, having my tongue be unbridled, um, because you guys may not know this about me, but I'm a fairly talkative person, and uh, I can say things that I regret. <laughs> Later, many times, and so uh, I need the bridle. I need the master controlling me and communicating. Okay, shut up now. Here's what I want you to say. or I want you to listen, as we learned earlier in James. Better to listen than to talk. And using the horse analogy, if you ask the question, "Well, how do you how do you bridle your tongue? How do you put it? How do you put it on?" It's a horse. You put the bridle on when you're ready for a business. When you take him out in public and you're going to ride. That bridle goes on at that point. And so it's something that you have to put on, just like um, putting on your clothing. You, and to me, that says, the implanting of the Word is not a one-time thing, but it's a, it's a daily process. It's something that you have to go before God in prayer and, and say, God, I know that I can get in trouble with my mouth. I need to have my speech bridled. And um, it's interesting that James... Uses unbridled speech as an example of when we're really out of control. We'll read in chapter three that he talks about how the tongue uh, is—it's a fire. It's like a match that can cause a huge conflagration in a forest. It can wreak havoc in our lives and in the lives of of people that we love. And so, we need to be really careful. We need to season our speech through the Lord. We need—I think every morning we need to say, "God." How can I bless someone today, rather than you know uh, my ten, natural tendency to criticize and complain, gossip? What, you know all these all these fires that you can cause with your tongue. How can I? Um, would you take control of my speech through your Holy Spirit? Would you speak through me to bless others? We all know people with unbridled tongues, right? Um, words of criticism, disrespect, contempt. If we're not, in God's word, reading it, reflecting on the way it holds a mirror to our life, if we're not immersing ourselves in God's reality and allowing it to counteract the false reality, the false wisdom that the world is putting on us, the flesh and the devil seeks to infect us with this stuff, then we're in danger of exhibiting an unbridled tongue. And and we need to pay careful attention to what James says here. Have you ever watched Olympic-level horseback riding? Um, Like when they're going jumping over things and going around the the posts, whatever they call it. It's cool to watch. It's, it's a, a thing of beauty. And imagine if if those horses didn't have bridles. <laughs> It'd be chaos. They'd probably make glue out of the horses if that were the case. So we ha- there's hope for us if we submit our tongues to the bridling influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, James goes on to talk about true religion and what it looks like. And um, it's interesting to me what he chooses to talk about here. He talks about two things. Uh, the first thing is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I'm going to tackle the, the second one first. Um, and I think there's... The way we normally interpret this, being stained by the world, we interpret it kind of through the cultural lens of the influence of worldliness on us. You know, If you're, if you're hanging out with non-Christians at bars or if you're watching R-rated movies or listening to the wrong kind of music or whatever... You're in danger of getting stained by the world. I think there's there's an element of of truth to to that. But the interesting thing to me is, was looking at James and how he uses the word stain in context here. And in chapter 3, he talks about, um, he says, The tongue is fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. It's the only other place that the word stain is used in James. And it's not used very much throughout Scripture, except to to talk about sin and, and blood as a, uh, a, way, a way to compensate for sin. Uh, so it's interesting that he says the whole body can be stained, and we've, we've read what Christ had to say, your whole body is clean, you're washed, but the tongue has the capacity to stain the entire body. It's, it's super important for us to get that right. He's says, the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's pretty serious words. Um, so I think there's he's circling back and I think there's a he's linking back to what he said about the tongue when he says keep oneself unstained by the world I think he's saying your job is to control your tongue that's true religion that's part of it second part is widows and orphans right? now why did he pick widows and orphans and I think the reason is um, that widows and orphans are symbolic almost of vulnerable people they're people who by no choice of their own have a course in life where they are often marginalized and um it's hopeless for them and one of the cool things i really appreciate about this church is our focus right now on on foster families because that's orphans right that's that's people that that james is talking about um I know a number of people in our church are foster parents martin is has studied to become a cossack court-appointed special advocate and he is um he's putting his faith in action in the court system which is a challenging place to do it you know um but he's he's there for the sake of of orphans and blessing them that's that's true religion and I, I ha, had a little video. If you'd like to watch this at home, it's really cool. There's a gentleman I met in Romania in 1997, 20 years ago, named Father Tanase, who is... I mean, you guys probably never heard of him. You've all heard of Mother Teresa, but Father Tanase, to me, is like a Mother Teresa in Romania. Uh, we visited his little village. It's called Valea Ploplui. And when we were there in 1997, there were dozens of kids running around. It reminded me of like Peter Pan. They're running around the village and they're herding sheep and all this kind of stuff. If you know anything about Romania back in the 70s and 80s, the communist government of Romania, headed by Nicolae Ceausescu, um, sought to encourage parents to very irresponsibly have lots of children, and then. They couldn't, couldn't handle them, so they'd give them up to the state. And the vision that Ceausescu had was the state was going to indoctrinate all these little minions in the communist ideology and so forth and so on. And what really happened was they went into orphanages that couldn't really take care of them. They would lock them up in almost cages, cri- uh, cage-like cribs, and they half, were half-starved, and many of them had... Uh, it was just a horrible situation. And in, in uh, the late 80s or early 90s, I think it was ABC News broke this open to the world, and people were horrified by what was happening in in Romania. During that time, Father Tanase, an Orthodox priest in this little community called Leopoldo, stood out forward and he said, oh, the other thing that was happening was tons of abortions because people did not want to have children in that environment, so abortion was rampant. And Father Tanase said, don't abandon your children, bring them. If you have no other options, bring them to me, and I will care for them in my little community in the mountains. And he got on board with, with um, the other members of his community to do this. And so when we were there, a dozen families maybe had, some of them had you know, a dozen children each, <laughs> and they were herding sheep and they were doing all this other stuff. And, and the kids were happy. They were hearing about Jesus, and they were growing, and they were healthy, unlike the kids in the orphanages who were being neglected. And It was the coolest thing I ever saw. And I did a video about it. You can find if you search on... Uh, my name in Romania. You'll find it on YouTube. And uh, there's also a, a couple cool videos. Now, one of them was made a year ago. And I was really fascinated to find this. If you search Father Tanasi in Romania, and it talks about where that ministry has come since 1997, there are now 400 kids in that community. 400 kids! And we're talking about one guy who said, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I wondered before I went to Romania, if you'd have said, hey, are our, our Orthodox priests evangelical?" I just, I don't know, I don't think so, you know. But when you think about the definition of the word evangelical, it's one who shares good news, right? That's what we, we call ourselves evangelicals. We share good news. And sharing is not just sharing it verbally, but it's sharing it through our actions, sharing it through what we do. And he shared good news. I never heard him preach a sermon, but I learned tons from this guy just by looking at him loving on these kids in, in his community and by the sacrifices that he and people in his community made to be there for kids. And... It was a thing of beauty. and uh, So I encourage you guys to watch that video when you get the chance. I, uh, Pastor, you said you might want to do some questions. Well, before you come let me say one final thing, and then I'll wrap it up, and then we can have questions and answers. So here's my key question. What does what you do and what I do, as well as what you or I say, reflect who we really are? If we're a person that claims to have believed, if we believe in Jesus... As most of us here have today, if someone doubts our word of testimony, can they look at our life to settle that question? Has Christ wrought a change in us that is truly and clearly demonstrated by the way we live our lives, especially in regards to the grace with which we speak, our bridled tongues, as well as the way we're the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting world. Many people read the word, many people study the word, many people confess and repent. Uh, But that's not the purpose of the word, is it? The purpose of the word is that we would be transformed. So are you fulfilling the purpose that God created you for? Are you being and am I being transformed by the implanted word of God? I Thanks, you were, Larry. you were leaving now.
0: Thanks for sharing, brother. I appreciate it. Um, you know, my one thought, I have, actually, I have many thoughts, but I uh, wanted to just give everyone a chance to ask some questions, but my one thought is when James writes that verse, that, that passage, it says, he who reads the word and it's, but doesn't do it is like the person who looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away. The idea is that there is no intention in that person's life to have a responsive heart to what he or she just read or just heard. So there's sort of this idea of wanting to go and obtain knowledge, obtain all understanding, but yet not be willing to put it into practice. And uh, what, what, Larry, what do you think it is that happens to our hearts when we do that? When there is a, a sense within us of I read that, but I'm really not interested in putting it into practice or implementing it or allowing it to shape our lives?
1: I see entire churches where the focus is on what you know mm-hmm. and gaining knowledge, the entire seminaries, gaining knowledge. And, and, and really at the root of that, I think, is pride. I mean, it's, it's how can I impress others with how spiritual I am? And that's demonstrated by what I know. And I think what that does, um, when we allow a foothold for pride... In our lives, I think that turns us. Uh, first of all, we, as we we saw here, he'd say that, you know, if you if you do what you hear, you will be blessed. So, a, we don't get blessed. B, other people don't get blessed. We're not um, we're not being the hands and feet of Jesus to the people around us. We're just being a a club where we're sitting around and sharing, you know, what we know with each other. And um, that really, I think, gives the world an excuse to point fingers at us and say, yeah, they're a bunch of hypocrites.
0: Yeah, and I, there's, there's also another dimension to it, a personal deforming dimension to it. And that, what I mean by that is this. If you read Proverbs chapter 2, um, in Proverbs chapter 2, Lady Wisdom, it's a metaphor, but wisdom cries out to us in all the areas of our lives and says, call out to me and I will come to you. Mm-hmm. Call out to me. And I will give you the wisdom to navigate life. But if you refused to take and live out that wisdom which is given and to you, and this is very important because James is the, is the, um, the wisdom book of the New Testament, just like Proverbs and, uh, is of the Old, of the old Testament. If you live, if you hear it, but you don't do it, what happens is it hardens our hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the words of the uh, country music song, "My Give a Darn Darn Gets Busted." <laughs> All right, um, there's something that happens within us that says, you know what? Your, your heart hardens, and wisdom cries out and says, you know what? If you don't do what I ask you to do, if you don't allow it to shape your lives, then when you do really need me. And you cry out, I will not answer. Mm. So there's that hardening, there's that isolating that takes place within us. And uh, that's why it's so very dangerous to look at the word, to read it, and then to walk away with no intention Mm -hmm. of implementing it.
1: And I think we often think of faith as knowledge-based. Yes. Um, You know, what are the things I need to understand and say, yes, I agree to these things, and if I check off that whole list, then I have faith. And later in James, we'll see, he talks about Abraham as an example of someone whose works were justified by faith. And when you look at that, the faith that he's talking about in Abraham's life was on the basis of relationship with God. It was obeying the voice of God. God told Abraham to do a very hard thing that in the example, he cites an offer up of his, his only son Isaac as a living sacrifice and, and Abraham obeyed that, and that was uh, is cited as him being his faith put into action, put into works, but it's a, it was a relational based faith that wasn 't a check the box and here 's what I believe so that means you have the foundation you have to have a, a, a vital active relationship with Jesus. you have to be hearing from him
0: yes, there's a subtle form of idolatry that takes place within the Western Church that was unheard of, or at least was unfamiliar with the Eastern Church, and it was this. We say, love the Word of God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to honor the Word, but we're to love our Father. And Jesus says, now, what's it look like to love your Father? Is it... uh, All feeling all ooey-gooey about it? No. Loving our Father takes and He says, what is it you want from me? What do you want me to do, Father? And then responding to it. Jesus says, how can you say you love me if you don't do what I say? So it's not a a knowledge-based pursuit. It's a relationally-based pursuit. And that's why James hits this so hard at the end of chapter one and then he'll hit it really hard at the end of chapter two so
1: just one thing real quick i want to share Uh um i'm really encouraged by what's happening with like our young adults going to the philippines because if we need an antidote to self the self-centeredness of youth (laughs) which as older people have are self-centered too but if you know, the, the solution is here. It's, it's being the hands and feet of Jesus to orphans and widows. And they're practicing that. They're, going, they're getting their feet wet. They're going to the Philippines and they're seeing need. And they're going to have a hard time when they come back being as self-centered as they might have been when they left. So um, pray for them. It's awesome, I think, that they're there. And, um, and, and and talk to them when they get back. Say, what has Jesus done in your heart and your life because of, of what happened?
0: Amen. I was thinking this morning, I'll wrap up with this because uh, our time is up. But we are blessed, okay? We are blessed people. And in James, we are blessed because the word of Christ has been implanted within us, been birthed within us. But we are blessed so that we can bless others. And in this context of chapter one, we are blessed so that we can bless by being quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to get angry. We, can, we are blessed so that we can bless by speaking words that communicate delight and honor in others. That's how we bridle our tongue. we bring it under the Lordship of Christ as we understand what the purpose of our words are. We are blessed so that we can bless by bringing peace. And security to those who have been traumatized by loneliness and loss. That's living out our faith in the spirit of what James speaks about in this passage. So I want to ask you this morning, how can you take and bless someone else? You are blessed. You are blessed. We are all blessed. How can I Take that blessing and bless someone else today, tomorrow, this week. Think about that. Think about that. Father, it is well with our souls because you have made it so. You have made it so. Father, we rejoice in that. We long for that. We long to grow deeper in our individual experiences of that. But Father, help us to take that sense of shalom, that sense of wellness to others. And be it in a word or be it in a gift, be it in a, a listening ear. Father, help us to take that. someone else so that we may be your heart and your ways, your face to them. In Jesus'
1: name, amen.